Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Remko Limhus, acting director of AJC Berlin, joins us now from Berlin to discuss the anti-Semitic attack on Yom Kippur afternoon against the synagogue in Halle, Germany. Remko, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. Now, tell us, what happened this week in Halle? So yesterday at around noon, we got the first reports that there was a shooting in Halle, which is a rather smaller city in the eastern part of Germany. And immediately in the first messages we received, you know, they were talking about there was a shooting at the synagogue or near the synagogue. It wasn't like really clear from the beginning, but, you know, a few hours in it, you know, it, as the story developed, uh, it became clearer and clearer that uh, this terrorist had tried to attack the synagogue in, in Halle and wasn't able doing that. So he couldn't enter the synagogue and because he wasn't like really sophisticated. But sadly enough, he was able to kill two random people in Halle. And so that's like the short version of, of what happened yesterday. It's interesting because when he couldn't succeed to get into the synagogue, thank God, he shot someone, if I understand correctly, he shot someone on the street, and then he drove to a kebab restaurant, uh, which is kind of Mm -hmm. almost a a symbol of, of immigration, and shot someone there. You know, it kind of speaks to the ways in which Jews and immigrants and Muslims are kind of all targeted in certain situations by the same people. Of course, yes. But I guess I, I really need to stress that, I mean, he obviously streamed his terror attack in the Internet. And of course, he's a racist and of course, he hates Muslims. But as what I've learned from people who have seen the video and the live stream he put on the Internet, um, he immediately starts out this video in denying the Holocaust and mm. saying that behind all ills in society, there's the Jews. So, you know, his main target and his main goal was to kill Jews in that synagogue. And, you know, after he failed, of course, yeah, he, he just passed by a, a kebab shop. And so, again, I haven't seen the video. I just, you know, I can only tell from, you know, what I've read in the news because I really don't need to see this. But he more or less said casually, OK, then, you know, I take the kebab shop and shot people there. But again, like he was ideologically driven by his hatred for Jews and Jews were his main targets. And uh, so I guess we really need to stress that. Yeah, we saw something similar last year in the shooting in Pittsburgh at the synagogue in Pittsburgh here in the U.S., where the shooter was apparently driven, of course, by his hatred of Jews. But specifically, it was the fact that the synagogue had hosted like a a welcoming refugees event. And he saw that as, you know, this kind of very classic anti-Semitic idea of the Jew as puppet Mm -hmm. master, you know, wielding all of the elements of society that, you know, he as a part of the, you know, so-called master race thinks of as unsavory. So his way of pushing back against immigration was he basically felt that he was going to the source, which to him was the Jews. Of course. I mean, naturally, that plays a part. I mean, you know, a guy who is an anti-Semite is, you know, very likely to be a racist and is very likely to hate Muslims. So, you know, that all goes 
hand in hand. But again, like he, he was mainly driven by his by his hatred for Jews and by his anti-Semitism. And so we, I guess we we just have to keep this in mind. And I mean, again, like you know, these people are always racist uh, at the same time. And I mean, he he already in this video again, I haven't seen it, but just. Read also some some transcripts. He also said like that you know feminism is you know the driving force behind declining birth rates in Western societies, and you know that opened the gate you know for for the refugees and you know why the Jews or uh, let in all these migrants. So of course you know this is always part of, of of the ideology of like people like him. What did you think, Remco, of the response across Germany yesterday? You know what happened, both governmental and civil society, and is it the right response? So in terms of like governmental responses, um, security was uh, shored up around Germany at, at synagogues. And um, this is still the case in all states, as far as I know. And they will keep it this way for the, you know, the foreseeable future. And in terms of civil societies, I mean, we had a few gatherings. I mean, we had two here in Berlin with a few hundred attendees. And there were other gatherings in other cities. And I attended the gathering here in Berlin. And thankfully, the chancellor showed up and expressed solidarity with the, with the Jewish community. But still, I mean, you know, Berlin is a city of like three and a half million people. And, you know, 300 people showing up, that is not much. And I guess I also have to stress that we had a case on Friday. I mean, you know, this week was very busy um, where like a guy tried to enter a synagogue here in Berlin with a knife and now uh, and shouted slurs uh, at Israel. So nobody was there, you know, to show their solidarity, you know, in this case. So it's very sad that obviously people have to die, that people, you know, come out and show their solidarity with the Jewish community. Yeah, I'm glad that you bring that up, Remco, because, you know, in just the past seven days, there have been uh, there have actually been two anti-Semitic attacks or, or really attempted attacks in Germany. Of course, the shooting in Halle, which made international headlines, but also this attempt to bring a knife into a synagogue in central Berlin on Shabbat by someone who, if I understand correctly, was a Syrian refugee screaming Allahu Akbar mm-hmm. um, and F Israel. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't yeah. quite so polite as I was. Um, <laughs> you know, it really highlights for people the fact that anti-Semitism is not something that only comes from the far right. And it's not something that only comes from radicalized Muslims, but it comes from both of those sources. It also comes from the far left. Do you think that in Germany there's an awareness and an appreciation for all the different sources of anti-Semitism today? Unfortunately not, because as you have already rightly said, you know, we have the anti-Semitism on the right that we have seen yesterday in Halle. We have the Muslim anti-Semitism, which we've seen on Friday here in Berlin. We have the left-wing anti-Semitism. I mean, you know, just thinking of BDS and, you know, all this anti-Zionism, but we have also an anti-Semitism in mainstream society. So right now it feels like it's coming from all corners. And, you know, a lot of people are very good at you know, always like picking the anti-Semite, their own ideology, meaning like, you know, the left is always pointing to the right, the conservatives are always pointing to the left. And I don't have the feeling that there's a deep understanding of, you know, how fundamental this problem is and that it spans political positions or outlooks. And this is a problem that we have like in all corners of society and not just in just one corner. 
one of my friends put out on Twitter that a friend of his, who's a rabbi in Amberg, Germany, that he had requested police protection for Yom Kippur for mm-hmm. his synagogue and was refused. The police actually told him that they didn't understand why the synagogue would need protection. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this is a turning point? Is this going to be a seminal moment? in Germany's understanding of the resurgence of anti-Semitism, do we think that in the future police will recognize that Jews need to be protected? I mean, I can only hope so. But, you know, when we're talking about security, we can say that we're talking about, you know, the bigger cities in Germany, Frankfurt, Berlin, Munich. Um, the, the security is already good. But, you know, when you go to Jewish communities and smaller cities, I mean, as we've seen yesterday in Halle, you know, there was not even a police officer in front of the synagogue on on Yom Kippur. And this is something that is just simply unacceptable. And I've been in today and I will continue to be tomorrow in contact with authorities and officials. And I stress with them that, you know, this right now is like the most important thing that, you know, security is the most important thing right now. And that every community, every Jewish community and every Jewish institution has to have proper protection in Germany. And not only right now or, you know, in the next three weeks, but permanently, because what happened yesterday can happen again. And that, you know, the Jewish community doesn't have protection is unacceptable. And it's also not acceptable that security and, you know, the lives of Jews in Germany depend on, you know, how thick a door is because, you know, people didn't die yesterday in the synagogue. You know, thankfully didn't happen because the door was too thick and the terrorist wasn't able to enter the synagogue and gave up. So, and again, like right now, like the most important thing is that, you know, security is tightened in every community and for every Jewish institution in Germany. So that's one thing, you know, what are we specifically looking for Germany to do? And and really, we can broaden this to uh, to all of Europe. You know, what needs to happen now to ensure that Jews stay safe? First of all, we have to recognize the problem very, very clearly. And we have to understand the problem. We have to understand that the problem is in, you know, we, we find this problem in every corner of society, on the left, on the right, Muslim, in the mainstream. We have to address it properly. We have to make sure that this is, you know, after we've assessed it and, you know, analyzed it, that there are proper actions taken and, you know, that, you know, civil society supported in their efforts to counter anti-Semitism. And, you know, there are a lot of great civil society groups that we as AJC in Berlin work with and that doing like an awesome job in what they're doing. And, you know, they have to have the proper funding because this is not something that the state can just do. So we need the support here and of the civil society. And uh, yeah, so that would be like the two immediate steps. And, you know, thirdly, I mean, just talking now about Germany, I mean, we've talked about the case on Friday where this guy with a knife tried to enter the synagogue. I mean, he was released out of custody not even 24 hours after that. He tried to enter the synagogue with a knife. So, And this is also not acceptable. And this is also something, you know, the the politicians have to look into to see, you know, where we can tighten the law and that these people or that a guy like this guy on Friday, you know, is not released almost immediately and uh, because they said there were no grounds on holding him, uh, which is, you know, <laughs> he obviously tried to murder Jews. So, you know, if that's not a, a reason to hold somebody in, in custody, you know, what is? Well, Remco, we're glad to have you on the job. We know that there is much more work to be done. Thank you so much for updating us on this tragic and important development. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
This past weekend, Foreign Minister Israel Katz confirmed that he has been advancing non-aggression treaties with several Arab countries in the Gulf, what would be a historic move to enable cooperation in the absence of any peace treaties or diplomatic relations. But relations between Israel and the Arab states have already begun to warm in recent years. So what would Arab countries have to gain from such an agreement? Why now? Here to share his take on whether this prospect will really come to fruition is Raphael Aron, the diplomatic correspondent for the Times of Israel and the reporter covering this story. Raphael, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Raphael, if you could just kind of explain what the latest developments, what has happened and what it means for Israel and the region. Okay, so the Israeli foreign minister, Israel Katz, has started an initiative that he says could potentially be historic. He's working on a series of non-aggression pacts with states in the Arab world, particularly in the Gulf states. Now, it's very clear to remember that no such agreement has been signed, and no Arab state has even confirmed that it is in talks with Israel about these defense treaties uh, or non-aggression pacts, whatever you want to call them. What exactly is a non-aggression pact? What are the assets of that kind of a a treaty or agreement? Mm -hmm. So the Israeli foreign ministry drafted uh, the text, but that has not been released to the public, so we don't really know exactly what's written in it. But from a report uh, the other day, we uh, can get a glimpse of it. Um, Apparently, this is uh, talking about bilateral relations, not fully diplomatic relations, but what they call friendly relations and cooperations in accordance with the United Nations Charter and in accordance with international law to prevent hostility or incitement to hostility against each other, to eschew military or security alliances with other parties against each other. So this is shy of full diplomatic relations, but it's sort of an agreement where both parties are saying, we do not intend to attack you or to make alliances with your enemy. Is that a real concern there in Israel? Is there a, a kind of a underlying fear that any of the Gulf states could attack at any point? Or does this formalize an understanding that already takes place? Yeah, so the idea is indeed to um, take this creeping normalization that we've been seeing over the last couple of years between Israel and the Arab states one step further. Israel realizes it's full peace deals with Arab states are impossible to achieve as long as the Palestinian problem festers. And therefore, this can be seen as an attempt to, you know, kick the can a bit further down the road. Okay, so we won't have full diplomatic relations, but let's have some kind of written agreement. Okay, why not full diplomatic relations? What is standing in the way of that? Well, the Arab countries and I have to be more precise, there are two Arab countries that do already have diplomatic relations with Israel, Jordan and Egypt, but all the other countries, including all the Gulf countries, refuse to establish diplomatic relations with Israel because they first want to see Israel cut a deal with the Palestinians. they saying quite openly that they have no issue with Israel uh, as long as it helps in creating a Palestinian state. And as long as that's not happening, they're not willing to talk about it. If you actually read the U.N. speeches that many of the Arab leaders gave just a few days ago in New York, you'll see they all keep on repeating two-state solution. 
Israel and Palestine living side by side based on international law and relevant UN resolutions. That's usually the diplomatic formulas they use. So they are, in principle, ready to engage with Israel, but full diplomatic relations only after there's a peace deal with the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. So do you think that this agreement to cooperate, to aim for civil cooperation, does it have anything to do with the increasing hostility from Iran, the increasing threats from terrorist groups like Hezbollah? What is prompting this? I mean, I don't want to sound cynical, but what's prompting this release right now may be um, succession wars within the Likud. And let's not forget that this whole idea was cooked up by the foreign minister, Israel Katz. He's the only one talking about it. He didn't hear Prime Minister Netanyahu or anybody else in the Israeli government, for that matter, talk about this issue. It comes from one person only, and he is one contender for the succession of Netanyahu. Of course, I don't want to belittle the fact that Iranian aggression is increasing every day. It has, over the last couple of weeks, intensified. And of course, Israel is very worried about this, and so are the Arab states. And we can just assume the clandestine cooperation, especially in the security and defense field, um, is also intensifying between Israel and the Gulf. Uh, So it's not necessarily a fear that the Gulf states will uh, attack or there will be some sort of aggression. It is almost a a collective fear. No, absolutely not. I mean, no. It's almost a collective fear shared by Israel and the Gulf states aimed at Iran, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. It's not a secret anymore that Israel and the Gulf states see in Iran a common foe. They're cooperating against Iran. They are openly talking about cooperating with Iran. I mean, you saw what the Bahraini foreign minister told Israeli media not too long ago in Bahrain after the U.S.-sponsored Peace to Prosperity peace conference. They are worried about Iran, and they are interested in working together. What My question to you is, I mean, you said you don't want to sound cynical about this, but I have no problem being cynical. What is the actual potential that this pact will see the light of day? Well, that's the key question here. I think it's rather low. I think it was a, a good idea to talk about it. It's a good idea for a foreign minister of Israel to engage in these kind of things. Once you realize you cannot have peace with the Arab nations, but they are actually positively disposed towards you because of common enmity to Iran, then why not advance such ideas? It's a good idea. And if he can make it happen, I will you know, congratulate him. And so will everybody here in Israel. But the chances of this actually happening are very low. Now, the Arab states are already getting this security cooperation with Israel without fessing up to it in public. So there's nothing in it for them. Um, Um, Why would the Arab states sign formal agreements with the Zionist enemy, in quotation marks, when there's still pro-Palestinian sentiment in the Arab street and it's still prevalent in the Gulf? even though less or so. I mean, they don't hate Israel as much as other Arab countries do. And yet, they have very little to gain from this, because Israel is cooperating clandestinely with the Gulf countries. And uh, therefore, there's only what to be lost and very little to be gained by making this relationship public. Having said that, there are certain small steps the Arab states are taking towards making this relationship more and more open, as the interview that the Bahraini foreign minister gave to Israeli media, etc. And there are other signs here and there. 
but to actually sign an agreement with the state of Israel about non-aggression, that's the step that I do not see happening in the near future. So you really just think this is a political maneuver by cats that has to do with the local political scene there in Israel? Mostly, yes. It's it's. I, I don't want to be too cynical. Um, I think that Israel Katz obviously has good intentions, and he has made it his goal to advance Israeli Gulf normalization as much as he can. And as I said before, I think it's not a bad idea to try to push this. And maybe he also leaked this to the press and then later confirmed a few hours after Channel 12 here in Israel first reported about this, so that the Arab states would be forced to respond to it. Let me tell you, not a single Arab official has said anything about this in the meantime. (laughs) So it was in the media for a couple of days, and now it died down, and we're exactly at square one. The fact that the foreign ministry drew up a draft agreement, that's a good thing. And I hope that Arab officials are reading and considering it. And we can only hope for this to actually gain track. I, I, I honestly, though, don't see it happening, at least not in the foreseeable future. Has there been any precedent of, of a similar kind of agreement between Israel and another country that does not have diplomatic relations with the Jewish state? I'm not familiar, no, with any such treaty. There are relations between Israel and countries which we don't have diplomatic relations with um, when Netanyahu meets the leaders and even shakes hands, so public expressions of sympathy can exist even in the absence of full diplomatic relations, but I'm not familiar of any kind of precedent where there would be um, a non-aggression treaty and not full diplomatic relations. Because in most cases, there's no need for. Once two countries agree that they want to work together, then what stands in the way of diplomatic relations? Now, in the case of Israel and the Arab countries, it's a bit different, and that's why we are where we are. Well, Raphael, thank you so much for explaining these latest developments, for sharing your cynicism and skepticism, as that's what journalists are uh, supposed to do. And we really appreciate you coming on the show. Anytime. Call me for cynicism anytime. With Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur behind us, our calendar now turns to Sukkot and Simchat Torah. On Simchat Torah, Jews around the world will finish and begin anew their annual cycle of the weekly readings of the Torah portions. Synagogues will also read the beginning of the book of Joshua, which comes right after the conclusion of the five books of Moses and contains the immortal charge from God to Joshua, Chazak ve'ematz, be strong and of good courage. Be Strong and of Good Courage is also the title of a new book from Ambassador Dennis Ross and David Makovsky. The book profiles the courageous leadership of four Israeli prime ministers, David Ben-Gurion, Menachem Begin, Yitzhak Rabin, and Ariel Sharon. Author David Makovsky, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, joins us now. David, thank you so much for joining us. Delighted to be with you. Now, why did you and uh, Ambassador Ross set out to write this book? We thought that people, when it came to the issue of Israel and Israel-Arab and Israeli-Palestinian relations, they became very despairing, and people just kind of thought the the problems are too big, and uh, they really had no reference point in terms of, you know, historic, gigantic, kind of larger-than-life leaders who who made uh, sweeping decisions. And I thought it would be useful to, as a way to connect people to Israel and to Israel's challenges 
to really give them a sense of, well, who were these leaders and what were their journeys to historic decisions? So it's a way of trying to inspire people a bit about the fact that Israel has faced you know, extraordinary challenges before, but has found a way to uh, meet the bar of history. You mentioned these gigantic, larger-than-life characters. Israel's full of gigantic, larger-than-life characters, and the four that you picked seem, I think, to be the right four, but I'm curious how you arrived on precisely Ben-Gurion, Menachem Begin, Yitzhak Rabin, and Ariel Sharon. Well, we thought that Begin, Rabin, and Sharon were the ones who really made the momentous decisions on on peace. Um, So each one had a journey. Each one went through a kind of internal transformation in a certain way. Ben-Gurion was in his only because he was, you know, he was foundational. Everything about, you know, the decision to establish Israel, every other decision kind of rests on the shoulders of that decision. So we thought that, you know, we could have written six books on Ben-Gurion. He just... He did not flinch in the face of extraordinary decisions, and so we felt there had to be expression for that. But the other three are people that took decisions on Arab-Israel peacemaking. Was there any thought to reach back into the prehistory and you know profile Herzl or to look to Golda as another kind of larger-than-life leader? We get asked about Golda on the lecture tour, I would say. I know I do. I think Dennis does, too. We made a decision that this was not the right leader for our book, that she was kind of tested between 71 and 73 with all sorts of efforts by Sadat to see if there'd be a way to find a solution to back off the Suez Canal and avoid war. And we felt that she didn't take those decisions. We're not saying that because of her there was a 1973 war, but we felt there was some creative peacemaking that should have been done, and she didn't do it. Now, if we write another book on kind of Israeli decision-making about the diaspora and the Soviet Jewry movement, for example, I, I would do a Golda chapter, because there I do think she had a very key role, including being an ambassador to Moscow, but during her premiership as well, it was a very key period. So, but I think we, we made the right call. I agree that you made the right call. Those felt like the right people to me. Yeah. David, you took the first half of the book writing about yeah. Ben-Gurion and Begin. And one of the things that's really special about this book, something new, something interesting, something exciting, is that there are a lot of files and, and papers that have been declassified. And in many ways, this was kind of the first book to plumb some of those depths. What was the most interesting thing that you learned doing research for this book? Oh, good question. I mean... For me, look, the Begin chapter was where we really got the full benefit of the State Department declassification of cables, um, the Camp David period, and um, and not just Camp David. It was also the Israeli government's debates in the 1967 war. They had four debates within a week of the war. The public still doesn't know about it, but... And there's also been a declassification of the Mossad cables for the secret meeting of Dayan Tohami in Morocco that uh, presaged the, um, the electrifying historic visit of Sadat to Jerusalem in November 77. What all this declassification has meant is that you really get a, a more kind of up-close and personal sense 
about Begin, what it showed was, I mean, I know that people aren't going to believe this, but it's the truth. I mean, Begin was kind of a 19th century European liberal living in the 20th century. He hmm. he believed in the, um, that, you know, that the, he didn't, he didn't call them Palestinians. He called them Arabs of the of Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. But he he thought that Israel needed to give them the vote, and he said that's what Bismarck did with Alsace Lorraine in 1871 to the French uh, citizens. And that's kind of shocking in many ways because Begin people see is more on the right side of the spectrum. No party even to the left of Begin, uh, certainly not to his right, had offered this. And uh, he very much saw Zionism and civil liberties as being fully reconcilable, and uh, he was willing to go much further than anybody uh, at that time. And uh, that's actually cemented. There was a brief period that him and Carter had a good relationship. It was really over that. And um, so Fagan, I think, this believer in um, that you can reconcile uh, even nationalist Zionism with civil liberties. I think to the extent of it, I didn't really fully appreciate till I started going through hundreds and hundreds of pages in Hebrew of those cabinet uh, proceedings that took place within a week of war, and also realizing, Safi, that um, all the debates in the 50 years uh, plus since the Six-Day War, they had in the first week of the war. And the kind of the lines are starting to be drawn within that first week. So to me, it was like jaw-dropping. I, I just didn't want it to end. I wanted to just keep reading. About a year and a half ago, maybe, I interviewed Sippy Livni. And I kind of maybe put my foot in my mouth a little bit because I said, you know, your parents, her dad, I think, by the way, gets a shout-out in the, uh, the Ben-Gurion chapter. So her parents were famous kind of Irgun people. They were, um, right. they were you know, Real... Her dad was in charge of operations of the of the Irgun. I mean, Menachem Begin never fired a gun. <laughs> he used to write more of the press communiques. He didn't do operational stuff. Eitan Livni and another fellow named Poglin, those were the two operational people for Begin. And so I kind of set up this question for Tzipi Livni where I said, you know, your parents were these like right-wing revisionist Zionists. You know, what do you think? You know, they might not agree with all that you, whatever. And she basically said like, no, like I, I disagree with that. And maybe there's some, you know, baggage there, whatever. But but she basically said, and it's actually a compelling case that like you were saying just a moment ago when it comes to civil liberties, that in many ways the right today in Israel does yeah. not line up so well with the Baganist right, certainly not the Jabotinskyist right. And Livni would perhaps claim that she herself, although she's not in politics anymore, but that she herself is more the authentic heir to right. that ideology. Dan Meridor's family was in the Likud. Mickey Eitan, there's a whole group of them that are like second generation uh, Irgun people, Likud people, and uh, they don't feel comfortable because they feel that Baganist uh, worldview of of liberalism is, is missing. And uh, so it is fascinating. I think you put your finger on something that's uh, really important. And the most literal heir to Menachem Begin, of course, is his son, Benny Begin, who announced, I think, that he would not right. be voting for right. a right-wing party. Absolutely. Sharon's term as prime minister ended tragically with his stroke in 2006. Why is this the moment for this book, as opposed to any other time in the past you know, 13 plus years? Well, I think what happens is that it's it's accumulated that people 
you know, feel a sense of despair that this, you know, they think the issue is hopeless or whatever. But we also are very worried, Dennis and myself, that the American community who cares about Israel, whether they're Jewish or, or otherwise, that they that they don't realize, you know, that some of the demographic challenges. Dennis and I are both concerned that the Palestinians will just give up on a state and say, you know what, we don't want the state, we want to vote. And we think this will create uh, a huge challenge uh, for U.S.-Israel relations and for supporters of Israel in this country, because once people want to vote, that shifts the paradigm dramatically. I don't think Israel can agree to that and remain faithful to the mission of its founders, a Zionist and democratic state. Uh, these are the two kind of wings of the Zionist airplane. But I am concerned that Israel will be more, and Dennis is concerned, it will be more isolated. When people say, okay, you didn't want them to have a state, they said, I'll give them the vote. But if they don't get either, this is, I worry, we worry it's a long-term problem that we think dwarfs everything else. We think BDS is like small potatoes, although it's very important, of course, to challenge it. It's relatively small given this issue ahead. If BDS is a hill, this is a mountain. So we want to draw some attention to this issue that has sometimes been relegated to the margins, given everything else that's been going on in the Middle East in recent years, to say not that we feel you could hit a home run on this issue, uh, but at least be a gradualist and uh, hit some solid singles uh, on this issue because the implications long-term impact Israel's very identity, its very character. And it's it's hard for people to focus on it when some of the other issues, whether it's the Iran nuclear issue, whether it's Hezbollah, whether it's Hamas, they are viewed somehow as less abstract. But we think this is very important given what the stakes for Israel in terms of its identity and character. And we hope that by 90% of it being focused on people who did think about demographics and did think about what this means for Israel to remain a Jewish and democratic state, that it will be a way of, of drawing some attention to this issue. But hopefully even just the 90% of the book that's just pure history will reconnect them in a way that they haven't been connected and will make Israel's history come alive through four very uh, inspirational people. Now, we're not saying that they were all angelic, and we're not here to approve of everything they did, but some of them were very flawed. Sharon comes to mind. But yet they basically what came down to it is they sensed the, uh, a sense of national responsibility, that they can't kick the can down to their kids on this issue that they had to solve this issue, that the risks of inaction were greater than the risks of action. And when even if their personal interest and the national interest came into conflict, the national interest had to win out and force them to make decisions and not to, to just kick the can. You started down this road a little bit, but you know I, I think that serious historians generally reject the idea that history repeats itself. But certainly they would say that we need to learn from our history to inform the decisions that we make in the future. I think that this book does a very good job of avoiding that kind of doomed to repeated idea while still recognizing the importance of knowing our history. What are the contemporary issues? Again, you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but what are the contemporary issues that call on Israeli leaders uh, today to be strong and of good courage? 
Well, this this issue, our fear that that Israel be heading to a a binational reality, uh, that it it'll veer from it being a Zionist and uh, democratic state, and uh, that the lack of a decision is a decision. And Ben Gurion, Begin, Rabin, Sharon thought you needed to be proactive or else other actors who maybe the best interests uh, are not, you know, what, what guides them for Israel uh, could play out. So I think we feel that, you know, these leaders, they, <clears throat> they, they really felt this sense of national responsibility and they stay, they, you know, they stayed focused on what was truly consequential and they understood not deciding is a decision and they felt that even if they have to confront their own political allies, if it's for the good of the country, they have to do it. I mean, you know, you know, we don't compare ourselves to Ted, you know, the John F. Kennedy and Ted Sorensen, but we hope this book is a kind of Israel profiles and courage of people who were willing to engage uh, and confront their own political allies because they thought this was the right thing to do. In, in John F. Kennedy's introduction on Profiles and Courage, he cites Walter Lippmann, who says, you know, the leaders are supposed to do not just what's popular, but what's right. And I think that all these four leaders, you know, I hope people read it, just love it, is that they feel their journey was, we got to do what's right for the state. And if it causes me some inconvenience and some political battles, so be it. But they were willing to take that risk because they thought the stakes for the state of Israel were much higher. I want to close with a kind of thought experiment. A few years ago, Jeffrey Goldberg, who's now the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, he wrote about his vision for the Zionist pantheon. And he said that there are three seats in the pantheon. The first seat is held by Theodore Herzl, who envisioned the physical return of Jews to their homeland. The second seat is David Ben-Gurion's because he made that return a concrete political reality. And he said the third seat remains empty. He said it could have been Rabin's seat, but an assassin killed him before he could get there. He said it could have been Sharon's seat, but his own body betrayed him. And um, at the time, in 2015, he was saying that Netanyahu has been the most likely living candidate for that seat, kind of coming from that idea that it takes someone from the right in order to make the concessions that are necessary to really fix Israel, fix it, that is to say, like, make it permanent, fix it in the firmament of the countries of the world and with recognized borders, with universal legitimacy. You know, you guys have created this kind of pantheon also, or a Mount Rushmore of sorts. Right. Um, is there a final seat waiting in your pantheon? Who does it go to? Well, it's a great question. I'd say I tell people we have a, a paperback edition ahead, so we're happy to add a fifth <laughs> chapter. But right now, it's, you know, the theory is a good theory that someone on the right, just like Begin was the one who could make peace with Egypt and give up Sinai, and Rabin with, and Sharon with their security credentials were able to also make key moves. You know, I think that the theory should have been the way you said it, but I think at the end, and again, I'm not saying he's the sole culprit here because Abbas was not willing to confront his mythology either when it came to, you know, uh, and I was part of the Secretary of State's team on 
the um, the last round, 2013-14. So I don't want to put it all on Netanyahu, but I do think that while he was well-positioned, he did not want to have that confrontation with his base the way the others were willing to do. Um, and um, so, yes, that uh, there's still a chapter to be written here. I mean, basically what 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 unites Begin, Rabin, and Sharon is that on the Palestinian issue, they were both trying to reconcile in some fashion, you know, two competing national movements that claimed the same soil over 100 years. is just too much history and too little geography. And Begin, everybody who came after Begin invoked Begin, talking about the legitimate rights of Palestinians. And Rabin and Sharon uh, did their part. Now, I think it argues for what I call the solid single. No one should hit the, can hit the home run on this issue. The, 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 you know, the, the Venn diagram is just too far apart that they don't overlap between Israelis and Palestinians. But I think what you want is to leave open the possibility of solving the possibility of solving this conflict in the future. And you don't want to take steps now that shut the door to that prospect. And the Palestinians need to take steps, too. It's not just Israel about not paying relatives of suicide bombers. Uh, and Israel, you know, by not building outside the security barrier. Eighty-seven percent of the settlers are, are people over the Green Line, I should say, because it includes East Jerusalem, live within eight percent of the land inside the security barrier known as the blocks. The other 13 percent, about 104,000, live and the other 92% of the West Bank outside the blocks. If you say no more people in the, outside the blocks, you're, you're leaving open some political space to solve this in the future. Each side has to hit a solid single. And I, you know, I wish Netanyahu would have done it. I don't think he could have ended the conflict, but I think he could have hit a solid single, just like, and it could have been put more pressure on, on Abbas to hit a single. So again, ready to add a chapter for the uh, for the paperback edition, uh, I don't know. Given developments, we'll see. The Israeli political uh, firmament is very fluid. Uh, it's um, and we'll see. If, you know, it could be we're at the end of the Netanyahu era at this time. But uh, I, I hope that there will be definitely more chapters to be written. Well, I hope that our listeners won't wait for the paperback. Folks, the book is Be Strong and of Good Courage by Dennis Ross and David Makovsky. It's available now uh, wherever good books are sold, as well as in ebook form and audiobook form. And I highly recommend it to people. David, thank you so much for joining us. Delighted to be with you, Seppi, and wish all your listeners a happy and healthy New Year as well. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Plumbers. Good for the Jews? Just before I closed my computer for Yom Kippur, I spotted a beautiful story on the Times of Israel. Simon and Salim Matari, two Arab brothers from Haifa, own a plumbing business. Recently, they were called to the home of Rosa Mayer, a 95-year-old woman, to fix a major leak in her plumbing. While they worked, Salim began to learn about Rosa's life story and discovered that she was a Holocaust survivor. 
When they had finished the job and it came time to write up the bill, Simone scribbled down on his pad, zero shekels. May you live until 120. The phrasing of a traditional Jewish wish for long life and good health. Her life story touched my heart, Simone said. At that moment, I decided I won't take a cent from her. If you live on Twitter where everyone is angry and everything works in absolutes, it's impossible to imagine two young Arabs treating a European Jewish immigrant kindly, either because you don't think Arabs are kind or because you don't think European Jews belong in Israel. If you live in fantasy land, you might not know that 50,000 of the 200,000 Holocaust survivors in Israel today live in poverty, and Rosa may or may not have needed this favor. But if you live in the real world... I hope you'll appreciate this story for what it is, a reminder, appropriate for this Yom Kippur season, that it's important to be kind to one another. That message is certainly good for the Jews. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 